Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. Today, I'm going to try this product. Organic energy drink, Pilot's Friend, Fruit Tonic. And it has a lot of caffeine in it. So I'm going to try it. It doesn't say whether I'm supposed to shake it or not, so I'm not going to in case it's a little bit carbonated. And here we go. I said craft. It says crafted in Italy by doctors for pilots. So let's see if I can take off today. I'm going to try to talk to myself a bunch today. Mmm, that's actually quite tasty. Fruit tonic, it tastes like fruit. Mmm. I already had my yerba mate, which has caffeine in it too. And it is an easy switch from coffee to yerba mate for me. I like the Guaqui brand. It was featured on a documentary about sustainability or something. I can't remember what documentary it was. Oh, it was a documentary with the guy who jumped out of the window in his sleep or something. And he was said to have some kind of disorder and he woke up in the hospital without a broken bone and changed his life. I don't remember his name now. But anyway, he featured that company and I knew about them probably 10 years ago at the eco-friendly show here and they talked about how at least at the time their packaging was complete completely compostable and stuff and I've been drinking their yerba mate for years it's a lot cheaper to buy it from them online in bulk if you drink a lot of it than than retail so I'm drinking that because someone I know bought some and then gave some to me so part of their business model is to employ the locals to make the mate and and sustain the rainforest because the mate actually grows in the rainforest cover, I believe. So they need to conserve the rainforest in order to grow the best yerba mate. So that's cool that they're doing that. Restoring the rainforest as part of their business model. And... Um, Last night, I used the CBD transdermal cream that has some other terpenes in it as well. And I could feel, when I was falling asleep, I could feel the edges of my body were kind of wavy. Not in a bad way, in a very gentle and, and nice way. And I slept really well. I took two and a half quetiapine, or two and a quarter. So tonight I might take two. I'm going to... If I'm going to add in the CBD transdermal cream, then that gives me incentive to try to lower other medications. Plus, I think that 
I'm in the part of the biorhythm where I don't need as many medications to fall asleep, possibly, uh, because the awake dream algorithm is not there as much. So it's not making me have this dream stuff projected into reality and then that wakes me up. I talked a little bit about that in terms of the lucid dreaming thing. So many interesting ways to think about it. And um, yeah, so I'm going to keep going with the CBD cream at night and decrease the medications. Try to decrease the trazodone too, maybe, because I've never been up as high as 150 milligrams. So we'll see. I just made a smoothie and drank it and um, I think I am taking off a little bit. I had on one of my to-do lists that I wanted to find my Mother Earth Minerals Gold and I thought it was in with my kitchen stuff which isn't unpacked because I don't have a kitchen and indeed it was. So I'm going to take a dropper of this. I remember looking up the different Mother Earth Minerals and seeing if any of them had factors in mental health and the ones that I found that did were gold, germanium, and cobalt. And um, one can just look up what that does in terms of mental health. Like these could be uh, cofactors in enzymes or part of the active sites of certain enzymes in the body. Well, that's the gold. Now, when I'm in a lower energy state, I don't have, my brain doesn't come up with this stuff. It kind of hibernates. And this week, since I have access to space and a kitchen and everything, unimpeded, I... Making, I'm making smoothies, I made overnight oats and I ate them this morning and last night I made my broccoli dinner with lentils and the Indian sauce. Kind of upset my stomach, my stomach was kind of like, ooh, what's this? So many vegetables in one meal. Um, but my, I'm sure my guts will get used to it and thank me for it. So my guts have been kind of on the move if you know what I mean. And I'll try some germanium too. I've had these for a long time, but these don't have an expiry date on them. Place drops under tongue and wait 60 seconds before swallowing for maximum results. Okay. And cobalt. And for my next fun biological molecule experiment when I found those drops I also found this reduced glutathione I think I got it on Amazon quite a while ago and doesn't have an expiry date but but I got this to put up my butt because um, glutathione is something that's 
in the liver and um, so a good way to get it to the liver is through the hepatic vein system that is surrounding the the colon no the rectum that space before you let it out and that's why people do coffee enemas that the coffee goes right into the rectum and it doesn't have to go into the colon because the caffeine gets absorbed into the hepatic vein system there and and then um, that stuff goes to the liver that's why it's not good to hold it because the toxins go back into the liver so I'm gonna put this in a smaller baggie because this baggie is really off awkward to spoon the glutathione out of So here's the glutathione, looks kind of sketchy in this bag, but um, it's kind of expensive. So I only bought 10 grams and I'm guessing it was probably like 50 bucks. And so I'm gonna put a little bit in water and then mix it up like this. This is um, my Swirl Alive water. I didn't boil it, but it's pretty aseptic water from what I know. But one could boil it, but it's just such a little bit that I'm too lazy. And then back when I used to inject B12, I kept the extra um, syringe things without the needle because I needed a needle to go into the vial and then I had to clean, put a clean needle on to inject it, but that left me with an extra vial, which I left in like this so it's still clean. And then that way, I can just take this up. See, it's way more than, um, it's way more than three milliliters. It's probably at least six. So I'm just gonna go put this up my butt and it's probably not gonna make me have to go. It'll just, absorb into my body so now it's up there but it really doesn't feel like it's gonna stay very long um, but I'll make a run for it when I have to and then the other thing I found was this sassafras extract and it says for external use only I remember I did take it internally one time because somewhere I read you could still do that but then when I read the actual directions, it says, shake well before using, and apply to skin with cotton gauze or massage into skin until well absorbed. So, since I learned about this whole transdermal area at the base of the skull, like the hairline, the base of the skull, maybe I'll just put some there to see what happens because Apparently there's a lot of open nerve endings there and that's where I put my CBD transdermal cream. So this is pretty dark. So I'm just gonna put it there, see what happens. It smells kind of good actually. It smells kind of like, it smells kind of like root beer. Maybe there's sassafras and root beer. There must be. And um, 
yeah, so I'm just going to do that to experiment more with this area. I don't know much about it yet. I usually do the thing where if I hear from somebody they've done a lot of research on a certain thing, then I go with what they've said instead of reading too much about it. Then maybe I'll read about it later and that will build on my understanding of whatever. So a friend of mine said there's a lot of open um, nerves sort of with a lot of open GABA receptors and different neurotransmitter receptors. So hmm, it smells kind of good. So I'll just leave this here for a bit of aromatherapy. But I remember reading about sassafras doing something for mental health, so I bought it. And that's what I used to do a lot is try all these different biomolecules and different nutritional things and healthy things. And I think they're helpful, but I don't think they're the answer. I'm kind of just using them right now because my brain is in that type of mode of thinking of these other things to do. And also trying to use up some of the stuff that I have. And um, maybe it gives a boost in some way. And maybe not. It doesn't really matter. For me, experimenting with nutritional things is fun. It's part of my fun. And I think that's part of why I have done okay over the years is because my hedonism is nutrition and health. So even though I get a little bit happy a lot of times it goes you know up my butt or at the base of my hairline or uh, nutrients in my mouth and that's something that is beneficial anyway I think I'm gonna go um, get rid of this glutathione it's not gonna stay too long today okay that is better so you can see how it's kinda of fun to play with molecules and Yesterday I wrote what Dr. Peter Bregan said about psych medications. He said that they make you less of who you are. So if some kind of chemical medication can make us less of who we are, then what kind of molecules or nutrients can make us more of who we are? And I think there is something to that. And there are a lot of things out there that are designed to enhance our energy or our memory or cognition or things like that. Uh, but if anyone's ever been in mania, one might like to know what kind of molecules and nutrients would allow us to, to stay in that type of energy and space or, or integrate it more when we move into more of an objective state of consciousness or however it's working. Are there molecules that can help build the brain in a different way that we can contain that high energy? Because I feel at some point it sort of um, blows out the nervous system. So, yeah, wondering about, wondering about that. And maybe if we provide a bunch of different stuff, then the body can choose how to design that. It can decide. So if we have those molecules present, present and there's some kind of epigenetic or epigesturetic or situational factor, then we can, uh, well, then the intelli intelligence of the body can, can decide. And
So I want to start by talking about a bit of stuff that was coming to mind this morning and I wrote it down and I write things that come to mind down and then it accumulates into too many notebooks and it's really hard to catch up. So I was thinking to myself that at some point I could take the notes from the day and type something up instead of talking about it and maybe that would be a way to to keep up with it daily. I don't know. Um, so I was doing a little bit of playing around with the word diagnosis and I think I've done this before so this might be a repetition from a long time ago but I don't think it's exactly like this. I do think I talked about gnosis or gnosis however you want to say it um, and the definition of gnosis with a G is knowledge of spiritual mysteries so it's interesting that the second half of the word diagnosis is means knowledge of spiritual mysteries and then I um, was thinking just well get rid of the dia and just think of gnosis and it means sort of understanding or knowledge of spiritual mysteries. So I feel like it's important for us to understand spiritual mysteries and that's part of what these altered states are getting us into contact with. But it's experiential so we have to understand it for ourselves. It's like reading the book of the universe as our lived experience. So I found, um, I looked up the prefix for to speak or looking for a prefix for speak because I was thinking well our job in a way if we think about creating our function is to speak our understanding of spiritual mysteries so to speak gnosis and when I looked up that it took me to a website of a bunch of different prefixes and suffixes and some of the the prefixes for speak are are dict Dit, like dictionary, fee, like um, like uh, philosophy or something, and then fa or fest, like confess. So then I'm like, well, what sounds good? It could be dicknosis uh, or festnosis or phenosis. Not phagnosis, though. <laughs> and um, so... Then I looked up what dia means for diagnosis because I found this prefix suffix site by looking up speak prefix. So dia means word, study, say, speech, reason, to know, and it also means through, across, and between. So then without even get ri getting rid of the word diagnosis, we can get something like between or through understanding of spiritual mysteries or um, and then have diagnosis dialogue so dialogue about our understanding of spiritual mysteries of like lived experience of spiritual mysteries and um, diagnosis could also be to study or say your understanding of spiritual mysteries so we don't even have to get rid of the fact of the word that we've been diagnosed so instead of us being diagnosed, we can 
diagnose. We can we can study and we can say our understanding of spiritual mysteries. And the trouble is when we go into that mysterious state, we're living in it. And then when we come back into the objective state, whatever understanding we had in each moment of living it is sort of gone. And then we're left also with a, a an ego structure that is not as intact. And then that makes us sound weird and like we're not ourselves. And so that can result in getting diagnosed when instead of getting diagnosed, we need to diagnose. We need to speak and share and study our understanding of spiritual mysteries with each other in dialogue. So we could have diagnosis dialogues and just change the meaning of the word diagnosis. So, um, so yeah, that's something interesting, just starting to play around with words. And one could do that with probably a bunch of words. And all of a sudden, it takes on a whole new meaning. And then the word that we've been so... Um, that's been so put on to us when we change our understanding of it, we don't even need to, we can reframe that and then um, it could open up a whole different way of looking at things just by looking at that word differently. Um, and it could be that a mental health diagnosis is a good disguise in a way to do the work of diagnosis because um, a lot of times we get on disability or don't end up working as much, we're not able to function. But in our states of non-functioning, sometimes we can still explore our understanding of spiritual mysteries. We can retrospect on living the experience of gnosis, of being immersed in some kind of spiritual mystery. And seeing that life is really a spiritual mystery, but we've made it into something totally different through human conditioning. So it's the conditioning that is uh, troublesome. And I also wrote something down that I'm pretty sure I talked about before, which is um, the, the word entropy. And I'm pretty sure entropy um, means towards chaos. So things usually flow towards greater entropy. Um, I don't know if it's chaos or if it's sort of like if you put a little bit of salt in a big thing of water, it will all dissolve and spread as far out from each other as it can. So I was thinking of when consciousness goes from objective of seeing the world through the projection of the self and memories to more subjective it's sort of like an entropy of the self. So instead of looking through this one pinhole of the self that we think that we are, all of a sudden, um, that it's like that, that structure gets dropped into a big bucket of water and it starts diffusing apart. And in that way, um, now we have little bits of us everywhere and we're able to see from so many different perspectives because now we're not in this limited self-structure. So it's sort of an entropy of the self. And um, I think too, in entropy, a lot of times there is a release of energy. And that's one of the reasons why 
entropy exists because it releases energy. I could be saying this wrong. I'm trying to remember what I learned in uh, like high school or university or something. And so in order to reverse entropy, to bring something together, we often have to put energy into it. So I feel that it's possible when the self dissolves and this entropy is released, there's, there's energy that's released that was holding this structure together. And when that energy of the self um, going through like an entropy, when that energy is released, that could be some of the energy that now is available to the brain in order to speed it up or increase the metabolism of it or start to grow new structures. So, you know, maybe the energy doesn't even come from some kind of outside thing, but it's just a matter of all of a sudden the self dissolves and there's all this, all this energy that was wasted in keeping this false illusion together is now available to the brain. And this could be another way that sometimes they, they say that we become um, more manic in uh, spring and summer because there's more heat, right? So now there's also heat to break up the self-structure and also the release of energy that comes from breaking the self-structure. Um, and there's, you know, maybe less heat needed to heat up the body and maintain homeostasis so now it's available for the brain to grow new structures or new pathways or energize different parts of it that aren't typically energized and in that way we can almost think of ourselves as flowers there's more capacity for that to happen in warmer months for people that it's happened to for people that are flowering in this way and um also, too, I've experienced when I am in a crisis, oftentimes I get very cold to the point where I'm shaking. So it's, it's like that energy is being um, taken up into the brain to sort of reestablish the self-structure and, and it can make my body really, really cold. And um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's true, but it's a sort of way to think about it. And maybe a person needs to know a little bit about what entropy is, but it's just uh, sort of going and spreading out instead of staying together. Like if you put a, put a tablespoon of salt in water, and it would eventually not even, you wouldn't be able to see it because it would just diffuse equally throughout the water. So... So there's that, and um, another thing I was thinking about, I was doing some singing this morning because nobody's around so I can sing. And I remember I only started singing in my car a few years ago. And then the first time I sang when I wasn't in my car, I was like, whoa, this is weird. Like there's so much more space to fill up with my voice. Still, it's the same kind of thing. Nobody's around. You know, somebody could hear me. If I'm singing in my car, someone could see me. But... Even here, um, being able to sing to fill up a bigger space feels different. And then maybe maybe filling up a bigger space. And then it would be different still if there were people sitting here watching. So, so the conditions of the environment change how comfortable we feel expressing ourselves. And 
it can feel weird to sing in a in a big basement, a big kind of empty basement. And then, you know, think about how we're put in a, a psych, psychiatrist's office. That makes it impossible to sing. And we're being looked at in a certain way. So I was also thinking of it in terms of how when a person is first in contact with mania, we're usually out and about and um, being a bit crazy or we might be by ourselves being a bit crazy. But what I'm saying is when we work towards embodying our mania, maybe we need to practice like we can be our best self in a certain, like maybe when we're by ourselves. But then if we go out and try to be our best self, all of a sudden we feel a bit weird because there's people watching us. Um, we probably wouldn't if we were in mania, but I'm talking about practicing embodying the mania in regular consciousness. So, so being in an objective consciousness, but it's almost like trying to make that subjective energy that made us feel so much like our best self, trying to bring that into uh, like the object of our body. Like when we're being objectified, can we still be that? So when we first go into mania, if we're really confident and happy and stuff, we probably don't care what people are thinking. And that creates a certain ripple and vibration. But um, after we get captured by psychiatry for the first time, we realize that we are subject to what other people are thinking. And since we went so far into mania not caring what anyone thought, um, we kind of get punished by psychiatry saying, well now, if you didn't care what the masses thought when you were out and about, now you're really going to care about it because we're going to label you with a mental illness and that's going to distract you from your, your path of, of diagnosing, of of sharing your understanding of the spiritual mysteries that you went into. So understanding that other people aren't there. So can one bring the qualities of that mania into one's objectified life? Because when we come back to objective consciousness, we're being objectified. We're being objectified by psychiatry, our family, perhaps other people. So... And I'm not saying this is necessarily bad. It's it's a learning experience. And so here I am by myself here. I could be manic. I could sing. I could dance. I can do whatever I want. But if I was to do that down on the beach, maybe people would join in. But people might think I'm kind of nuts. And um, I also th thought of... So how, how do we practice being that way with ourselves and then moving slowly outward because mania puts it in to view like this is how it is and this is how it's always going to be and I'm, I'm great and life's great and everything feels so amazing and then we get a reality check we get put in check by consensus reality and so I still feel that you know I can work on embodying my mania here like being able to speak to myself on video is a lot different than speaking to a crowd or or releasing the video or speaking to friends or speaking to family or speaking to a doctor. But how can one work towards being the way they would be as their best self in private, in public and not have and not having others reduce us to what they knew us as. So for example, 
if I got in touch with that best self in mania. And then I realized, well, I can't be like that around my family, for example, because they don't know me that way. And they're going to be looking at me, projecting their memories of me onto me. And then that projection naturally sort of compares. It's like, hmm, something's not right with this person. I'm comparing to what I know of them. And so we are affected by the projections coming out of other people. And we might not, we might not realize it, but... Being aware that other people are looking at us through their memories of us and through their thoughts of us could be helpful because when we realize that that's happening, it would be good to to tone it down, to ease the reactivity of thought towards us. And to go with that, it would be cool to, to make... Um, a creative space or a creative community where things are designed where we don't have to worry about that happening that it's not based on memories but it's based on co-creativity it's not based on oh that's not how I remember you being yesterday or whatever and we're all sort of keeping each other trapped within this system of thought based on how we all saw each other yesterday or the day before or the day before and whether we like or don't like it um, and that's just a very limiting thing that, and that whole structure of that process has infused our brain and, and limited the energy that we have access to. If we're so busy doing that, we can't be busy co-creating with each other. Think about how we can't listen to a podcast and write something else that is unrelated at the same time. Like I've been listening to Steve Pavlina's 30 Day Abundance Deep Dive pretty much daily. And... I'm trying to listen the best I can because I'm noticing, I've noticed, I know that if I'm writing something down, I'm not exactly listening to what he's saying. Sometimes I have an insight to what he's saying and I extrapolate it to my context that I'm making for myself and I've realized that the time, the minute or so that I'm writing down that insight, I'm not hearing the next things that he says. But if I don't write down the insight, then I'm going to miss it. So what I'm saying is we're listening to our own judgments. We're not able to look look and listen with a co-creative lens and um, for me I look and listen to the moment with a co-creative lens and I think that's why I extrapolate things so if I'm listening to what somebody's saying I naturally co-create with what they're saying if um, if they're saying something then um, then I'm listening to co-create. I'm not saying, oh no, I don't like that idea, or yeah, that's a good idea, or like uh, judging good and bad. I'm I'm listening, and then when I really listen with a co-creative lens, then I create something based on what they just said. I create something new related to what they're saying. And Now, imagine if we talk to each other like that. Imagine if it was... Additive, so you might think of it as a sort of improv where you say yes and Or we could listen for a while and then wait for something to be extrapolated or co-created From what they said so in this way we wouldn't be fighting over opinions. We would be Co-creating with words. We'd be using words creatively and not conflictually not in conflict so I think that would be big. So I'm just realizing now that I'm always listening in that way, in a co-creative way. 
to add something new and not to judge or limit or have that sort of structure energized in my brain. And um, I also came with the idea of, well, how do we, if people that we know are full of memories of us, I, so, I think I thought of this because Steve Pavlina was talking about someone he knows that thinks about life in terms of, or an abundant life in terms of creating good memories. And not to say that that's right or wrong or anything, but what my mind co-created from that was that if my brain isn't so much based on memories, and that's why it might be lessening in so-called executive function, because that's that's precognition. It's pre-planning based on cognition, which we've been given. We haven't created that ourselves. Um, it's not creative. It's given to us. So, so if I'm my brain is less less um, calculating based on memories, that doesn't mean other people's aren't doing that. So other people's are doing that, and that's the thing that I'm more aware of now after this year and so what could we do about that so say say the energy comes in and we have access to our best self for a while or a self that we would like to be more of now imagine doing something like creating a bit of a talent show reel for oneself so Imagine that in so-called mania or those higher energetic states where we're more like how we're meant to be, how we were born to be, and we sort of get in alignment with, with the trajectory of how we were born to be because it's always with us. Um, so if we, if we click into that, imagine remembering, okay, I'm going to create a little talent show reel for myself. You know, maybe I'll be singing, maybe I'll be dancing, maybe I'll be writing, maybe I'll be doing comedy, maybe I'll be doing something creative, maybe I'll show my paintings, maybe I'll show my process of creativity or my, my artwork or my crafts or these inventions that I have ideas for but I'm not able to create to 100% manifestation by myself. So it's like a co-creativity, talent, um, latent ability, becoming, uh, coming online type thing. Imagine we're able to create that with some sort of, you know, structure in a way. And then maybe it's 10 minutes, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's two hours, maybe it's half an hour, five minutes. And then we, um, you know, upload it to YouTube unlisted or something and we send it to uh, our friends and we say, and our family and we say hey like this is some of my possibility and potential that I've come into contact with in an embodied and manifest way in daily life but I don't always have access to it sometimes I fall into negative states where I'm this this old version of myself or even worse like a version of myself that I really don't even like at all could you help me like are can you see ways that you can support me to be more like this? Can you, when you look at me and, and you, you feel sorry for me or you look at me as a mentally ill person, can you remember 
the the hidden abilities that I was able to show you on video and you know can you help me to uphold that because when we're in that state of mania we might be trying to share that with other people but maybe we can share it with ourselves and then share it with others later and say hey like I feel I was born on this earth to be a singer or I was born on this earth to create a song or and that could be sometimes why we tap into feeling like we did do something amazing like like John Harold said he thought he was the next Dalai Lama and he thought he won the Nobel Prize and things um, I thought I was gonna save the world at one point but really I feel that we're tapping into that that universal genius that that any of us can tap into it can be it can sort of descend upon us like grace sometimes uh, but we might not have access to it all the time. Even people who are called geniuses, usually after they die, they didn't have access to it all the time. So, but they didn't necessarily display signs of of being uh, disturbed by it going away, perhaps. I think that's more of what happens when we fall out of it and if we get into anger and aggression and some of those things. Um, it's just really annoying to no longer have access to one's best self. It's really sad and and we kick and, and scream as it withdraws its energy. And it's more like we're fighting to keep that universal energy than we're trying to fight with people around us. But what's happening inside subjectively starts to play out objectively um, and it manifests as this psychiatric system and and personal conflict and things like that but it doesn't have to we can get to the point where it doesn't happen and even if it's happened that way 10 times where we've gone kicking and screaming and we end up in the psych ward we can still work towards that not happening again and it doesn't matter it's like the next life in a video game oh it's like you just died and a lot of times we feel like we did die and that could be the end of the game, feeling like we died. It's end of the game, well, get up and try again. So, yeah, can we make our little talent show? I was thinking of that because I was singing. And I know my parents don't know that I like to sing. And if I made a tape of me singing, not that I'm great or anything, but I'm probably better than they think. So I'm better, that's the point, I'm, I'm better than they think. After one gets a, a mental health diagnosis, a lot of people around could be thinking that now you're worse than they thought you were. But really, we've also sometimes accessed better than we thought we were. Better than we ourselves thought, so the ones around us were even better than what they thought because they don't even know us fully. So how can they know us fully? They can't. But we can give them clues that we're accessing something important. And maybe that might lead to a bit more compassion when when we fall out of that. And, uh, you know, the flower it withers and dies. And it will, it will start to bloom again later. It can only grow for so long. It grows for some kind of season of the universe. So, and people have different rhythms. Not everyone's is the same. And... So that's a lot about that, but um, it would be nice if I start to speak a little bit more 
inspirationally and positively and in ways of possibility because I've talked a lot about like science in a way and that could be boring for a lot of people and um, I find that part interesting but this is the thing that Steve Pavlina talked about that he really taught me in one of his days of this deep abundance integration was that there's the level of um, there's a certain level and then another level and then the third level is character sculpting and story and then the fourth level is um, relationship with the universe and nature of reality so I feel that when we go into altered states of consciousness we go to this fourth level that he talks about where we are in this process of discovering the nature of reality and I don't think there's an ultimate nature it kind of changes with how our brain changes you know just like nature in the environment changes with the seasons of the Sun so when the energy is there there's a different nature of reality there's a different when the brain cells are energized just like when the flower seeds are energized there's a real flowering and then when the energy is not there when the season changes it changes um, it's um, lower energy and so nature doesn't get mad that the Sun goes away and I think that's part of what happens with so-called bipolar is the mood aspect that can manifest is because we're mad the Sun went away and then we're mad we're happy when the Sun's there when nature itself is indifferent so if we can be more indifferent to that that could be helpful but anyway he says the fourth level is exploring the nature of reality and and one's relationship with the universe which that's kind of what my notebooks and my talking about to myself is but the level below that which is the one I'm sort of missing is is um, character development and story so it could be an interesting story that a person diagnosed as bipolar and crazy talks to themselves for you know two and a half to three years and creates you know like 400 hours of video over so over 600 to 800 videos I think I'm already at 660 ish so it'll probably be around around 800 at least could be a thousand so crazy chick makes a thousand videos over three years and shows the transition from you know the anger of the mental health system to living one's dreams to coming back to sort of not the greatest living situation and learning that living situation is super important well duh and then going back out to live one's dreams and hopefully staying out there so you know whatever the trouble with that is people could watch along the way and be like oh this is the answer but don't see the final result that it usually isn't the answer I don't think there are any answers answers are in the realm of cause and effect and and Newtonian things so it's different than that and hopefully I can put something at the beginning to be like, you know, proceed with caution. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. But what would be even more interesting would be, you know, and then, oh, she shares it or whatever. I don't know. 
and oh, what an idiot. So, and all the terrible reactions to it, if anyone even watches it. So it might not even get watched. So, so that's not that interesting of a story. Most people wouldn't want to watch 300 or 400 hours of just babbling on. Though I feel that some people could get ideas of what they might want to create or it could help to change people's perspective that they're not less intelligent or um, a lot of things. I don't know what the, the possibilities are. And so, um, so the third level is, what, like I'm saying, the story and the character sculpting. So I feel like the character sculpting I want to do starting after December. I've tried to do the character sculpting thing along the way. Um, now I'm seeing that where say I got the rainbow wig and I was being kind of a silly character and that's often when it, it collapses. So last time in June and May and June, I didn't create a character. I didn't get all silly and it was a lot more tame. So. I have made attempts to create the character and live as the character, but it hasn't worked. So it's not time for that. But there could be a time when that is what's good to do. And what might I do? Well, I might decide to look more of the part that I am. So after watching the Kinsey movie, the movie about Kinsey, the guy who created the, the scale of of sexuality and everything. I think I'm probably a 4.5 on the Kinsey scale or maybe a 4.6, maybe a 5. So I think I would want to make that more obvious if I want to attract somebody into my life to uh, co-create and and provide um, like a beautiful energy to be around. and. You know, one thing I could do, I could cut my hair short. I could get some kind of like rainbowy tattoo. There are a lot of things I can do to make it more obvious, but you know, that's not really one of my needs right now, especially when I'm living in a basement with family. So, and also it's not super supported, unfortunately. So I, I keep that on the back burner and what else might I create as my character? I would probably be wanting to be super healthy and eat all organic and maybe raw vegan because that's a character, my body will be in really good shape. And when you think about people, they a lot of people want to lose weight and look good. So I think being in my late 30s and, and looking good is... Um, inspiring for people maybe and I want to stay looking healthy I'm not going to transcend a physical ailment like chronic fatigue and then um, work towards transcending a mental health condition to be not in shape and not fully able to enjoy the expression of my body um, like I'm not in good shape right now I'm not overweight or anything but I'm not strong. So my character would want to rollerblade a lot. It would want to chase the sun. It would 
want to um, be in rich dialogue with with open people. It would want to travel to healthy festivals and travel to different learning experiences. Excuse me. And um, yeah, so I haven't really, I haven't really done that. And maybe it's because I'm not done with this work that I'm doing. And it's a lot of work that I've been doing. And Steve Pavlina also mentioned today something about would you do what you're doing even if you're never paid for it so this thing that I've been doing by talking to myself it has a certain benefit to myself I think it helps it's like self-dialogue being able to talk to myself and be in dialogue with myself be in dialogue when I'm listening to anyone and have insight and and a co-creation based on what they're saying and so I think it's it's really helping me and then when I, if I share it, it could help other people, possibly. And I would do this and share it fully uh, without expecting anything in return. And I've been doing this for over two years. And I don't get paid for it. And I, I'm doing it for my benefit. But not only that, I'm doing it in a way that I could share it. I could talk to myself out loud and not record myself and then then I could never share it. But I am intending to, and I've been at this for a long time with the intention of being helpful at some point when I have some kind of feeling that it's the right time to share. And there's some really weird variables in there that could make for an interesting story when that is part of it. And in terms of sharing it, sometimes I write things down that it seems the universe is telling me about when I do decide to share it. And today it said, don't worry about the reaction of thought. So you say something, people with their opinions and thoughts are going to react. It says, don't worry about the reaction of thought, but the co-creation with the dreamers so um some people the point of this really is to get people into that co-creative mindset and being in dialogue with themselves in the universe and not being in repetitive monologue of thought that isn't good for the brain the repetitive monologue of thought is the memories playing one after another and that repetition kind of wears out the brain cells and I think that's part of what leads to things like Alzheimer's and we need to be able to like if I'm thinking in these tape loops and yet I'm doing everything these tape loops don't really have anything to do with what I'm doing so I'm not present with what I'm doing I'm absent in lost in self-consciousness and I'm not in in actuality consciousness so with the brain operating so much in something that's an illusion while doing all these things, this repetitive process is tied in with doing all these things. So then when those memories die of the self, like I am this, I did this, I remember this, this person's this and this person's that, all those memories that have been going on on repeat while we're doing everything, those memories going on repeat are tied into doing everything. So when the memories going on repeat start to die, in Alzheimer's and our sense of self 
our self-consciousness. And we're so used to doing things with this self-consciousness going on on repeat. When that dies, we lose our ability to do stuff too. So people become confused and not functional because of, because of that. Of the brain operating with this illusion of self while doing stuff actually and then we never actually realize what we're doing. We'll, we'll do our morning routine and we'll leave the door for, for work and we'll think, how did we even, I don't remember showering. So that's the problem. We need to not remember that we showered, but we need to be present when we are showering and present when we're brushing our teeth and present, present, present. And if we're doing things while present, then it won't be tied into the tape loops you know, we're used to doing things while absent. So then when the, the, ab, the presence of the absence is gone, so the presence of thought, which is being absent to being present, when that goes, then we don't know how to do anything because we don't even know how we did it when we were absent. We only know how to do it when we're absent and that's realizing, how did I shower? How did I get from home to work? So then, so what I'm trying to say is, we're on the automatic pilot and the automatic pilot is tied to when these memories, I should do this, I am this, I remember doing this, this is my wife, this is my brother, this is my blah blah blah, like we only know automatic pilot tied into these thoughts. So when those thoughts go, we have no more automatic pilot and we need to cultivate presence pilot. We need to cultivate, you know, pilot's friend, being a friend to the moment. So, um, and I feel that's part of what happens when, when we go into so-called mania or subjectivity. We're very present every moment we're doing something and being present, it has a lot of meaning and significance and we're feeling the significance and it's changing in its rich variation from moment to moment. And then when that stops happening and, and the energy is withdrawn from the brain and we come back to our, our objective consciousness, we don't know how to function anymore because we just learned how to function moment to moment with full presence and full enjoyment and full celebration. So the brain doesn't want to go back to functioning with these repetitive thought loops. And I'm not saying the repetitive thought loops aren't there or don't come back, but um, for me, I don't have those repetitive thought loops and, and also putting the energy into doership can be a problem too. So there's a lot of different layers to it, a lot of different ways to think about it. But I've been trying to make this point to myself about the importance of forgetting, the importance of forgetting this, uh, repetitive thought stuff while being present and doing stuff. And the more we can forget that while doing, the more we actually learn to do and we activate the brain to be doing stuff while fully present and never never thinking, oh, where was I? I don't know how I just did that. Because the automatic pilot was doing it. So we need to be a presence pilot and and then also realize that there'll be times when we don't really function because we don't have the automatic pilot anymore. When we went into so-called mania, we were fully present as the pilot. 
and we're not used to that. And that presence pilot messes up the automatic pilot, and so, and so we lose our so-called executive function of the of the automatic pilot. That's why I don't really buy into executive function as it's defined now, because it's based on the automatic pilot that is happening when we are having our repetitive memories going on, and we're trying to like set goals in our mind and project them and move towards them. That has nothing to do with the moment. There's something, there's a totally different process of seeing the moment fully and then some richness of the moment is available to us. And um, yeah, so I can see how this shift messes up our executive function. So when we're in mania, we're able to function very well in a totally different way, totally different behaviors. And then when that goes away, we're not able to function because... Um, Basically, executive function is meaningless once you've gone into mania. So it has no meaning. So it actually is a state of repetitive thoughts going on that have no meaning. And mania is full of meaning. Every moment feels so meaningful that it's very intense. And how can the brain go back to meaninglessness once it's had this sense of meaning? So normally our senses are conditioned by thought, but then that gets deconditioned and our senses are conditioned by sensing meaning. And um, it's really beautiful. And this is related to something else that I've, I've probably talked about to some extent, but so this is related to fight, flight, or freeze. When we're in fight or flight or freeze, sometimes things can also happen where we think, how did I do that? I don't know how I did that. So say somebody jumps in a river to save somebody and they normally wouldn't jump in a river like that. But if they see the fight or flight, the, the fight or flight reflex gets activated and that intensity, you know, it increases people's strength. It increases different things that people are able to do something superhuman and and um, and save somebody. And I feel that, and I think they probably remember what they did. They don't necessarily forget, but they're just more like, how did I do that? How did I have that strength? It was a strength I didn't know I had. And that's part of what is activated in so-called mania. But it's not fight or flight, it's it's this mechanism of being free from thought. And when we're free of thought, we have access to a lot more power. Because we're in we're in a circuit, we're connected with the actual moment. We're not connected with the past of thought. So we might think, well, how did I do that? But actually remember how remember it. Because um well, I don't know why exactly, but um I feel that that's part of the quality we need to bring into everyday life. So we might think of fight or flight as kind of an automatic thing, but it's not really automatic. It's a matter of full perception of what's needed in the moment. And when we fully perceive everything in the circumstances, the brain understands what kind of energy and strength it needs in order to save that person. And so it, it tries to... to um, 
activate that type of energy. And so we get into contact with the strength we didn't know we had. But we, we can do that every moment, but not be in fight or flight. I think that's part of what that type of perception, the type of perception we have in fight or flight, that how our waking consciousness is now is only reserved for fight or flight, like a true, um, a true necessary fight or flight. Um, we also have access to that strength every moment, but we just have this different algorithm in our brain going on. So we have access to the fight, flight, freeze or free mechanism. I feel we have that in mania. So in mania, it doesn't come in as fight or flight. That energy in regular consciousness is reserved for fight or flight, like getting out of a bad situation. But in manic consciousness, that energy is there, but it doesn't manifest as fight or flight. It manifests as higher energy to perceive meaning in the moment and be free from the thought forms that would keep us imprisoned in, in the reality that we've been living. So it's no longer fight or flight. But what I'm trying to say too is that when we come back to regular consciousness, we're now in fight or flight. Because in regular consciousness, it is reserved for fight or flight. But when we're in manic consciousness, that extra energy just gives us a real power and strength to manifest our dreams. But in the, this structure, it's that energy is only reserved for fight or flight. So what I'm saying is if we have that type of energy in mania, it's not fight or flight. It's pre, um, possibility, perceiving possibility, moving based on that. Full action not delaying based on thinking, oh, I'll do something later, doing it now. And our brain is still in that. But the thing is that when we go back to regular consciousness, we're in fight or flight or freeze. So often we, we end up freezing, which is what happens and we're helped along by the medications. And when we're in freeze, we don't have any executive functioning. Um, so it might look like we're not functioning, but we're in freeze. If we stop taking the medication, we'll probably be in fight or flight and we're fighting and running from the system. Or that's kind of what happens when we feel like somebody's after us or whatever. Because at a certain point, that high energy of creating dreams um, and manifesting dreams, we sort of get to the edge of where we can go with that. And then it turns into fight or flight. Like... The world of thought is catching up to us. Our brain is moving faster and stronger, so we're able to go so far ahead of this whole structure of thought in society, but the gravity of it's so big that it will eventually come and swallow us up. And when it gets close, we start to have this fight or flight reaction happen, and we feel like somebody's out to get us. And there's nobody out to get us. It's, it's just the structure of society. I don't wanna say just, but it's that structure. The structure of society is in opposition to us living our dreams for the most part. So, um, and then when we get captured by that, we usually freeze. And then um, the meds do what they do. They kind of tranquilize us in, in freeze. But then when the energy comes back, it's not even really coming back. It's just the freeze is going away and we're in, we're, we end up going back into free. So, so a way, 
a way to keep the fight or flight or freeze away of thought catching up with us, of systems of thought catching up with us, whether it's the, the family system of what we should be or the psychiatric system of what we should be. We can keep that away. And if we can keep that away, we can stay in free. We can still be free from it. So we might not be able to live our dreams right away, but we might be able to stay free of that. And when we're free, we can be we can be co-creative. So I would say right now I'm in a free state. So I'm not literally free like floating through the universe, but my brain is free from that thought conditioning and um, I'm able to be co-creative. And part of it is I'm able to be co-creative with that conditioning in that I can look from the outside at the structure of say the psychiatric system and then create these different ideas that would help to keep um, different structures of thought away that would lead me to be in fight, flight, or freeze. So recently I realized there's nobody after me. It's, it's thought. It's this different algorithm of co-creativity and freedom of the mind, and then the non-freedom of the mind of this is who you are, this is what you should do, this is what you were supposed to be like according to everyone else, blah, blah, blah. And when that comes back, if it's through psychiatry, I'd probably be frozen like, and afraid. So that's a long-winded thing. Oh, 53 minutes. This whole staying at home and taking, taking care of myself takes a long time. I ate the overnight oats and then I made a smoothie, which takes time to make and wash took time to get those groceries and soon it's going to be time to make dinner and then I'll probably be out of broccoli and have to go get more I'm not used to this I'm used to eating Laura bars for breakfast and then going out getting coffee and eating dinner somewhere and I'm realizing kind of like just getting food and having other people make it for me I never thought about food at a restaurant this way before and it's pretty obvious, but we're not only paying for the price of food, we're paying for the price of the cost to make it, the person taking time to make it, and also uh, the space we might be sitting in while, while eating it. And one could pay for one's own space to make things and have all the tools and spend time going to get the groceries or, or even ordering them online, then it takes a lot of time to, to make those things. So uh, by having a kitchen, one is almost forced to make food for themselves and it, it takes a lot of time and energy. Of course, that seems uh, reasonable, but try and do a two-month trial where you don't cook at home at all. You maybe eat breakfast at home like a, a breakfast bar, but the rest you get out and about. And it is pretty eye-opening, actually. I'm seeing that now. And something that probably clued me into thinking about that is what Steve Pavlina said today about something in his talk, he mentioned delegation. And he mentioned that every time you buy a coffee, you're delegating making coffee to someone else. 
But we don't think of it that way. We think of it as, as just buying a coffee. So I think that's why it came to mind that paying for a coffee, we're also paying for that space that they've had to make to make the coffee for us and the people to make the coffee. So no wonder it costs more. So if one doesn't want to make one's own coffee or have space to make coffee, then it costs a bit more because one's not paying for that space and everything that goes along with making the coffee. But one doesn't even need a kitchen to make coffee, but still. Just thinking about it in that way, after my experiment of eating at restaurants pretty much for a month has changed my view and I almost feel like I don't want to make food for myself as much. I like being out and about. So what that would require for me is sunshine because I don't like to be out and about in the rain. So I'm doing that this year and then um, perhaps one day having like a co-creative community where there's a smoothie bar where people make smoothies that enjoy making smoothies for everyone. And so there's an opportunity for health because that's the next thing I could do is try to find the healthiest options of eating out and about. I wasn't doing that last time. So now that I realize, hey, maybe I don't want to make my own food um, as much, where can I eat that's healthier? Because I do want to be healthier. My goal of making my own food isn't because I enjoy making my own food, it's to be healthier. So I can definitely design that into being out and about and supporting those businesses as well. Unfortunately, there's not many healthy places where I'm living right now. So that could be something to think about for me when I get back is maybe I wanna pay a little bit more for the room I'm living in when I get back, but be closer to healthier restaurants. There are a lot downtown, that's for sure, but I'm quite far away. So there's some places you can be right on the same block as a bunch of healthy restaurants. And not only that, it's a way to be more social and meet up with people who also want to eat at a restaurant here and there. That's something I did learn by being out and about. So here I am thinking, oh, I'm out and about eating at restaurants to avoid being at home and I don't have a kitchen to cook it anyway and I'm learning something totally different. So that's what I like about the journey of a mental health diagnosis is that um, I learn a lot. I learn a ton and that's the part that keeps me going is that I know I can keep learning. And so, you know, by delegating coffee like I would go get a coffee sometimes last this month and sit in Tim Hortons and drink it and watch the recording of Steve Pavlina's talk that day if I didn't get to watch it live. Or I was able to watch it live there, I think, too, depending on if I was there at that time. And um, I don't have to clean up. Yeah, the cup thing is a bit wasteful, um, for sure. So... That's something that I'm learning and I have to go make dinner for myself soon and I don't necessarily want to. And what else do I want to talk about? I made up another little word. Instead of bipolar, 
I put bijective. And bijective being a play on subjective and objective. So I feel like we go between subjectivity and objectivity. And that's what I'm using to summarize going between different states, like the dreaming while wide awake, awakening state, and the more sleepy state of uh, self-conscious ego structure. And there's many ways to explain why that is more of a sleepy state. And part of it is what in what I was just describing. That last chunk of the video I made, I, I put as the first 10 minutes of this one because it was too long for the whole video with the earlier bits. So I was saying how having the thought self stuff going on is not even knowing how one is doing anything. And you know, in a way that is closer to the truth, even of being in a really awake state because there's no doer, it's perception and action in the moment. I won't get into that now, but saying objective versus subjective, I kind of like that. It's better than saying uh, depression and mania. <laughs> and I think we get more depressed after we've been in the subjective dream creativity meaning algorithm of the brain and then we come back to this sort of historical, boring, repetitive, um, memory-based, believing, projection algorithm. So the thing too is I feel that when we go into that subjective state, there's nobody to know. There's no real self-consciousness. There's, there's full awareness of, of things that are happening. And so I don't know, I don't think we can stop some of the stuff that happens when we go, when we transition from um, subjective back to objective consciousness, but we can, we can, by perceiving in the moment, we can be very aware of what's happening. So our brain is in this freedom algorithm of co-creating with the moment. And then I was trying to explain in the last one, when uh, we go back to objectivity, consciousness, it manifests as fight, flight or freeze when we were before in free. So when the thoughts start coming around us in terms of other people and circumstances to sort of capture that energy, we experience fight or flight or freeze. Um, and we can feel afraid to death and we can even feel like we are dying. So to me, those would be objective signs that we're going back into objectivity. It's not literally we're dying or the world is ending, but feeling in this way can be an obvious sign that we are you know, coming in for a landing and going back to objective consciousness. I used to call this uh, transconscious. So we can, we can objectively feel the signs or see the signs of of going back to that other form of consciousness, which is really a different dimension of the mind and a diff different dimension of the world. Um, and it's like returning from space. It's kind of scary. Um, we might, and it's the death of that subjectivity dominant state. And so we might actually mistake that feeling of death of the subjectivity, when we're going back into objectivity, we might mistake 
in action that for, oh, we need to kill ourselves. And so when that's happening objectively, the subjectivity is really afraid. And, and the fear is coherent with what is sort of objectively seeming to happen. It seems like the body might end its own existence of its own accord. Um, but what could be seen to be happening in a way is is um, man, it's really hard to explain. It has something to do with those the layers of 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 repetitive thought. repetitive thought coming back online and going back into autopilot mode. So when that happens, the autopilot mode of thought would almost kill the body. Um, and then the subjectivity is watching in fear uh, of that. And it takes, it takes a lot of strength of the subjectivity to save the objective body when that's happening. So, I'm trying to relate the subjectivity to being free of the systems of thought. And then when the systems of thought start to come back on, we're more objective. But there's a transition period. And in that transition period, even the subjectivity can be afraid for, for the, the life of the objective body. And, and the thought coming back on would almost kill the body to spite the subjectivity. And so what it seems like I've been doing with how I've learned how to handle that while, um, like while alone is that I've trained my subjectivity enough to know how to save myself when that comes back on instead of relying on the psychiatric system to do that. So they might tranquilize me but I can tranquilize myself or I can take other supplements that will sort of calm down the body. You know, it's kind of like being rebirthed into objectivity and it's really frightening. Like imagine how afraid a baby must be when it's going through the birth canal and we're sort of being rebirthed into objectivity. And when we are, we can bring certain wisdom back with us to diagnose, to speak of, our understanding of spiritual mystery um, you know but it's funny we we come back and we get diagnosed with a mental illness so many of these things that happen objectively have a subjective reframe but since we're not able to understand the subjectivity and share it with others we end up being objectified and, and these things happening but you know there's this there's still clues in the terrible stuff that's happening. To get diagnosed is terrible, but you look at the word diagnose and it means to speak of, of one's understanding of spiritual mystery. So you just look at the word in a different way and you're like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Not sit here and be diagnosed with a mental illness and be like a vegetable or a zombie, but um, share that subjectivity. And so... Um, that subjectivity, yeah, there's this transition that happens that 
we can see those things as happening as a sign of what's happening as the return to objectivity. So one might not be as afraid if it's like, okay, this is what's happening as the return to objectivity. And just as we might, just as in consciousness it's possible from driving from point A to point B and being like, how did that happen? I don't know what happened there. We can, when going from point A of subjectivity to point B, subjectivity can be watching these horrible objective things going on, like maybe somebody rushing to, to harm themselves um, and thinking, how is this happening? Like, I'm not controlling this. Um, when one felt like one was in, in creativity in the subjective state, well, the creativity is ending. And when the creativity is ending, we're objectified and that almost can get mistaken as end the body. So these things can be misinterpreted. And if we're able to understand them, um, like you might see how it could be a lot less fearful. And it's, it would be almost like if somebody was in a plane and they didn't know they were in an airplane and um, they started coming in for a landing, that might feel kind of scary because they didn't know they were in an airplane. But if one can realize that in that subjectivity consciousness that happens for a certain period of time, one is kind of in an airplane and there's going to be a landing. And it's kind of a scary landing, especially when um, one was put up in the airplane, flying it by oneself without any lessons, which is often what happens in so-called mania or the creative, creative meaning co-creation algorithm versus the, and the, the perception-based algorithm of the moment versus believing, history, projecting, memory. So, um, I was also seeing mania as a call to wake up and others around us are trying to put us back to sleep as the self. So, um, coming in for a landing is also kind of going back to sleep. Going back to sleep with the thought um, algorithm. And at first the brain really resists it and it can leave one non-functional, completely non-functional. And um, the self dies in mania and only an illusion can die. So there's this illusion that's trying to die, but in the same way I was talking about how, you know, this self that we have going on in autopilot or repetition, I should blah, blah, me, blah, 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 thoughts. And we're doing something at the same time and we don't even realize how it's being done because we're not present with it. That same sort of thing happens with, um, you know, sometimes when the self-harm programs come back in because the self is harm. So then when it comes back online, um, sometimes it's very obvious the harm that the self is doing. And the self will often inflict harm on itself in order to um, call attention that it needs help because it doesn't want to harm other people. Because the self generally does harm one's body and other people. But we don't see it that way generally. But after being in the creativity, meaning, perception algorithm co-creating then it's pretty obvious what the self is doing and that's one of the reasons why we we check out of that whole system 
And I was talking about bipolar and bijective. So we could be bijective instead of bipolar, whatever that means. Because bipolar implies there's a person who is bipolar. But bijective implies that there is a brain that is bijective. It can see things in a subjective way or an objective way. There's no person. Like, we have this brain, but there's no person in there. Like, I don't know if anyone can see that, but there isn't. Even though uh, sometimes we feel that way, and it's kind of uh, compassion from the universe to make us feel like we are in control, but it's not really that way. And I got an email from Jean Houston this morning, and she's a lady that's interesting. I think she has amazing things to say. Like maybe one day I'll be able to speak in an inspirational way and not be like blah blah mental health every other word you know she's not saying that but she sent a, an email about we need to unlock our quantum powers and when i see that i see or i feel man we already had our quantum powers unlocked and it was locked in a spring-loaded can and when it got unlocked it just blew up and it was so much energy to try to to navigate and it was like being put into a completely different world where we have no compass and no map and the map is the moment um, kind of like the Celestine prophecy and so she's saying to people probably people of consensus mindset. Hey, we need to unlock these quantum powers. And I printed them off because I think these five quantum powers are are important. And if you read this from the lens of, hey, I've experienced so-called mania, you'll recognize these factors as something that we are already thrust into. So no need to unlock them. We need to understand how to embody them and to rein them in because they've already been unlocked. And that's the part that I'm, um, you know, hopefully one day it will say on something like this, you know, about unlocking your quantum powers. It'll say at the bottom or the top, um, if you've had a spiritual emergency or extreme state of consciousness or altered state of consciousness that you were thrust into without some kind of exogenous substance like LSD or, you know, even in that, um, if you had a non-volitional altered state of consciousness, you might have already experienced these. So we will help you to embody them because when you're thrust into them and then it starts to retreat, uh, that is a really scary process. And we're uh, oftentimes we're trying to hang on to them. I think that's part of what causes the distress after a mania is that we're trying to hang on to it. And when we feel it retreating, we get angry we get afraid and when we're in those states of emotion with extra power then very powerful fearful subjective or objective experiences can manifest to be coherent with that inner state if we could be like oh like the tide's going out the energy's withdrawing no big deal maybe we wouldn't experience such a big thing and um i noticed for me, last time I had the experience of the energy withdrawing, I noticed how the fear was trying to hook me back into some kind of help. 
and I didn't go I didn't fall for it so I feel like it's possible this next time I'll just notice the brain shift and there won't be as much there won't be maybe any fear and it could just be a matter of just being like and just oh that's I'm back kind of just like waking up in the morning like oh I won't really be um, some big jolty thing Because if one is afraid, then one might think, I am dying. And it's like, well, there is no I. So don't destroy the body. Just be still with it. But anyway, so I would add to this, well, if you've been in extreme states of consciousness, and even if you were diagnosed with a, a so-called severe and persistent mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, you might recognize this as uh, you probably went into these powers already, but you haven't learned to... Um, to embody these or make them like you didn't have the brain circuits to handle that energy so here's how you can build those circuits to uh, better manifest what that energy is, is showing you so her five quantum powers of Jean Houston quoting them are the power to expand time so you can do more in less time than ever before without adding stress to your life well <laughs> How expansive did time feel in mania? And how much could we do? How much energy did we have to do? Stuff. Um, you know, the way that it manifests as we're not able to sleep to people who are in objective consciousness, or even if we objectify ourselves and look at the clock, could be that we've just expanded time. And, and that could be possible. And... By expanding time, that can only happen when we have more energy. So when we have more energy, it's possible we don't need to sleep as much. And the second one, the power to experience sustained fire to keep you operating at your highest level throughout even the longest, most challenging days. Well, I had a sustained fire for a good month or two. So how do we experience this sustained fire to operate at our highest energy level? So we've gone into the experience of being to op being able to operate at our highest energy level. And uh, so how do we do that more? People have probably not experienced operating at, at as a high energy level as we have. So here's somebody wanting to take a course in order to do that. We didn't have to take a course. Um... The power to partner with the energy of the universe to more easily accomplish your goals and fulfill your dreams. While that state of subjectivity, of co-creativity, of meaning, of perception was partnering with the universe. Um, we don't see it that way. We're told it's um, a disease after. Imagine if we were told after, wow, you partnered with the universe for a good month. You must have got a lot of... Um, goals towards your dreams accomplished um but we're not told that the power to expand and express your creativity without sacrificing your daily responsibilities so this one we could need to learn because we go into states of expanding and expressing our creativity and oftentimes we do sacrifice our daily responsibilities like maybe we don't go to work or what have you. But I think we can we can learn to not sacrifice them. So basic responsibility, eating and sleeping. And um, 
perhaps going to work. But for me, I would say that it would be cool to design um, working when we're able to work and hibernating when we're not. So not buying into nine to five, but you know, mine might be a different, uh, mine might be five to three, meaning three months non-functional and not really doing much and five months really co-creative. So I could enter into a co-creative contract with the universe for, for four or five months and then be like, well, I'm going to be eating and hanging out with friends and, um, non-doing. And, um, it's important to, the non-doer circuits are really important. I'm trying to write down a few notes to maybe simplify some of this at some point. Um, so, what are our daily responsibilities? We can change that too. We don't have to go based on what we've told, what we've been told they are. And the last one, the power to attract the money, people, and resources you need to move your projects forward and achieve the level of success that you're striving for. Uh, so we do attract a lot of this in that um, high, highly energized state of consciousness. It seems like people want to help us and we start projects. And, you know, in the mental health system, they might say, oh, you start a lot of projects and you don't finish them. But what they, what we don't say to them is... People try to start projects with us. It's not only us. There are people that are really inspired by what we say. And some of them are like, yeah, like, let's do that. And so um, I feel that part of our role could be to help people find inspired creative projects to do together. But we can't necessarily physically actualize all of our, our um, ideas and insights into things. Sometimes it feels like we can see things from like an eagle eye view. So we could share with people, oh, like what if you did it this way? Or what if you co-created with this person? Or blah, blah, blah. Could be more like consultants. But when we try to be the agents of our own ideas, then, uh, you know, that would be like the queen ant having the idea to build this wonderful colony and then just trying to build all the ant um tunnels and the anthill themselves and go get the food that would be impossible so other people uh, so to me it would say we need a way to uh, attract people to co-create with us because we do have a lot of great ideas so it would be different that say I'm in a state of mania for a month and I'm like having different ideas and talking to people random and they're like no get away from me that's a dumb idea but that's not true I was talking about gardening with some guy one time and he was almost willing to come over and like to build all these planters in my yard. So they are, they all of a sudden are willing to come and help. But how do we, how do we do that in a, a bigger level? And, you know, me talking to myself is kind of saying to um, the other people in, in this other energy who have accessed it to be like, hey, what have you seen? What have you envisioned? What can you do? What part can you play? To build something completely different but I don't know what it is um, and it's not based on telling anyone what to do it's people acting of their own passions so yeah so the power to attract the money people and resources you need to move projects forward I'm hoping that that's what some of these videos might do
Well, I'm not really hoping that. I'm just wondering. Wondering. I'm not hoping for anything. Hope is a projection. And it implies that I know what to hope for. And that would, that would limit the possibilities. That would project onto the universe and say, Hey universe, I know what is supposed to happen. Not you. And I know the intelligence is in the universe and not in my brain. So I'm not going to pretend to know. And, um, you know, as part of what we create, it'd be cool to have like a lived experience research division, which isn't about, um, you know, what meds and things, but what works in lived experience. Not to calm down the intensity, but to but to make us more of who we are. And I think who we are is something that we find out by working together. We don't find it out by all having our little individual paths. You know, we have, we live in the same eternity. So that's kind of what I do. And that's why for me, it's not about finding the research, even though I do look a little bit here and there when it appears I don't go seek it out I could but that would take that would create way too much information um, just being in the moment and exploring things in due time creates books of stuff that I want to talk about so imagine if I studied other stuff it would be ridiculous so it'd be cool to have more people interested in this kind of research and maybe to to look into scientifically um, some of the hypotheses these are little hypotheses and um, uh, something else I wrote that I realized is that you know I might think that certain people are against me but it's not them it's memory it's it's psychological memory it's the logic of the self it's people with the memory and they're acting based on the self. And um, some people have had this, this radical mutation. And then others around are still operating based on what they think of us. So think of it as memories. Like people trying to talk based on memories and, and not on co-creativity. Uh, you know, people like memories because they can talk about what happened. And when we talk about that... Nothing changes, really. Like, uh, it's not co-creative. It's generally um, limiting. But then I realized that's okay if some people operate based on memories. And thinking of what Steve Pavlina said about that person who says to, they want to create good memories. I don't necessarily want to create good memories, but maybe I can, I can give memory people some good memories. So while my brain might be co-creative and thinking about all these books and ideas, but that has nothing to do with my my parents. They're not interested in that. But they're maybe interested in, in having a, a nice memory of me or something. So uh, can one do that? Sure, why not? Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. 
The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.